Welcome to the Pete on Software podcast, where we program with passion. This is the podcast that discusses technology, the business side of software, and the tech people that drive our industry. And now, here's your host, Pete Shearer. Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the Pete on Software podcast. I'm recording this on Friday, December 27th, 2013, and I'm pretty excited to get started, so let's go. A little bit about myself right off the bat. My name is Pete, and you can find me on the internet over at PeteOnSoftware.com and on Twitter as at PeteOnSoftware. If you're noticing a similarity right away to Joel on Software, Joel Spolsky, you'd probably be right. As I was coming up as a developer and starting to really take pride in what I did, Joel's book, Joel on Software, was instrumental in me learning a lot about the mind of a professional programmer, and I was definitely kind of a Joel fanboy a decade ago. One of the things that Joel espouses is the Joel test. It's a way that programmers can grade their potential or current employers. If your current employer scores too low, he wants you to try to implement the things in this list to bring up the quality and make things better for everyone. The Joel test is, number one, do you use source control? Number two, can you make a build in one step? Number three, do you make daily builds? Number four, do you have a bug database? Number five, do you fix bugs before writing new code? Number six, do you have an up-to-date schedule? Number seven, do you have a spec? Number eight, do programmers have quiet working conditions? Number nine, do you use the best tools money can buy? Number 10, do you have testers? Number 11, do new candidates write code during their interview? And number 12, do you do hallway usability testing? These are all good things, but the one I really want to talk about today is number 11, which is do new candidates write code during their interview? And specifically what I think makes for good interviewing. Recently, this practice has come under a lot of fire, especially from some senior programmers and others who feel that it's kind of beneath them to write code in an interview. Rob Connery, for instance, uh, just to pick an example and not to pick on Rob, of Subsonic, TechPub, other kind of internet fame. On his Twitter, he recently said that he doesn't do technical interviews in the traditional sense. He instead opts for conversations. And that one of his best employees at TechPub, who didn't really know any of the skills for the job he was being interviewed for, I think it was video, sound editing, something like that for the videos, don't quote me, But the man was smart, and so Rob hired him, and the man has performed wonderfully in his job. This has been quoted as evidenced against the standard technical interview. I understand and I respect that view. I really do. At the same time, that kind of thing has not worked out for me at all. Over time, and after many failures, I refined a technique that I use for interviewing. I'm not saying that mine is the one true way, but at the same time, maybe it can have some value to you or at least spark some meaningful dialogue. Where I'm at in Columbus, Ohio, it's a difficult market to find developers. At any kind of corporate or enterprise level, a lot of candidates are found through recruitment or placement firms. Resumes come to us glowing with all the skills that you could possibly ever dream of. And if the candidate doesn't know how to do something, don't worry, he grasps difficult concepts easily. What I hate is the kind of interview that's rooted in trivia. I don't like asking too many questions about naming the tenets of object-oriented programming and stuff like that, and I don't ever fall back to any of those kinds of questions unless there's a perfect storm of strange circumstances that come up. 
What I do like to do is a phone interview first. Prior to the phone interview, I review the resume thoroughly. I look for skills that we need, not just listed in the header, but found in the depths of the job descriptions. I also like to see what skills are just listed on the resume rather than shown out in the work. To start off the interview, I like to respect the fact that the candidate is most likely nervous. I start with a few icebreaker questions. The first question is always, how did you come to be a programmer? Or why do you do what you do? A good answer here is a story to tell me about how computers or programming, they were something that they found at some point in their life and they fell in love. I'm looking for a passion for technology. A passion for technology is going to help that person persevere when they're faced with tough challenges on the job. It also tells me that they'll probably be a good fit for any team that I'm putting together. My second question is also an icebreaker, but also very telling. My second question is always, how do you keep yourself and your skills current? Technology changes so quickly, how do you make sure that you don't wake up and it's 2015 and you're still doing classic ASP? I don't actually care what they do to stay current, but if they're vague here, I always press them. If they say, I read books. Well, which books have you read recently? I read blogs. Which ones? Who's in your RSS feed? I'm curious who they might have in common, too. I I might want to discover some new blog just from an interview. But then as I talk to the candidate, I ask about their job history. When technology decisions can be found on the resume, I ask how those decisions were made. Why did you choose and hibernate over entity framework? Stuff like that. If they didn't actually make the decision, I ask what would they have done in that situation and why. I want to know their critical thought process as well as the depth that they know the technology involved. The trade-offs, the pros, the cons. I usually conclude with asking them about any personal projects that they might have that they're proud of that they haven't hasn't come up in the interview and if there's anything else about themselves that they really want me to know but I haven't asked yet. If that all goes well, I'll call them for an in-person interview. If the in-person interview used to just be mostly what was in the phone screen, and there was no phone screen, but then I created the phone screen step, and the in-person interview was mostly talking and just some whiteboarding. But unfortunately, I found that people were either well-prepped by recruiters, or they got books on technical interviewing, and they could just talk the game. But when they got in the building, they weren't very good developers. Because of that, I created a specific process. First, again, because it can be difficult to code while others watch, I do icebreakers. I set up some ground rules that they can use Google as much as they want, and they can ask me any question they want. I want to know how they think, and I also want to see how familiar they are with the tools. If they are as experienced as they say, they shouldn't be moving around Visual Studio like a wounded sloth. So first, I ask them to code a method to see if a string passed in begins with a capital letter. I ask them to make some ad hoc tests to test their method, and if I see bugs, I make sure to have them code a test that will cause problems. All the better for them if they decide to think about the tests or testing conditions first. Next, I ask them to code a method to sum up the numbers passed in in a list. In .NET, it is interesting to see if they use the built-in extension methods on collections and if they check error-bounding conditions. There's more tests involved, etc., etc. Sometimes, if they still seem like they need it, or if I'm curious, I will ask them to code a class that is a singleton. I don't care if they don't know what a singleton is. I'll explain it to them. We'll talk through the logic. I'll see what steps they can take. 
How do they take direction or instruction from me? How do they act when they don't know something? That carries over to the last part of the interview. Prior to the interview, I construct an app built in the same manner that the company builds applications. I explain the app and I have them fix a few bugs in it. And then I have them implement a feature that's similar to another feature that already exists. And I want to see, can they read and follow the example of existing code? And again, Google's there. I'm there to help answer any questions. Programmers already have a reputation, and often pretty deservedly so, for being very arrogant. But can this developer be humble enough to ask for help or to have his faults pointed out to him? If he's paired before, he should be pretty comfortable with this. If he hasn't, or if he came from somewhere where he was the big fish with all the answers, then his attitude might get in his own way. And no matter how talented he is, he probably won't be a fit for the team. I know this seems like a lot, but I feel like it's very fair to the programmers, and it's certainly helped my employers find some really good talent. If I accidentally pass on an excellent candidate, no worries, he'll get another job. But a wrong hire can really set us back, both in lost productivity, the developer's lack of productivity, and yours from always needing to help them, and ultimately also the efforts you need to replace them. They take time. They take productivity. It's lost. I'll be honest. That's another attitude that I got from Joel with relation to hiring. You also may have noticed the theme in both the podcast introduction uh, and the, the content of this podcast. And that is the passion for programming. I really get excited about this stuff. And I know a lot of you get excited about this stuff. And if you didn't, you probably wouldn't even be listening to podcasts. People with this kind of passion are always going to have a home somewhere and they're going to be the kinds of people that you can build a team with. It isn't the only factor, but to me it weighs heavily, heavily in a first person's favor. I'm not saying that Scott Hanselman's Dark Matter developers can't be good developers, but I don't feel that the traits of Dark Matter developers strongly correlate to those traits of great developers. And after all, that's what we want to hire. Now I'd like to talk about my pick of the week this week. This is a site that I came across that really helped me out, and it's called regexper.com. It's R-E-G-E-X-P-E-R.com. And it can really help you understand and figure out regular expressions. If you're like me, you can cobble a regex together, but if you come across one of some level of complexity that was written by someone else some long time ago, you can get confused. Regexpert visualizes the logic and the control flow of the regular expression for you. You can easily see what is being checked for, how many times it's looking, how many times it needs to repeat, all that stuff. The code's up on GitHub, so that's worth a checkout too if you're like me and you're curious how people do these things. So for instance, if you go to regexpert.com, I've got uh, kind of a really simple email checker here that I found, but it would take me kind of a while to figure out that that's even what it was doing if I didn't know. But when I plug that in here, I see, okay, we look at a word boundary. And then I can have any number of letters, numbers, dots, underscores, percents, pluses, and dashes, followed by an at sign, followed by A through Z, 0 through 9, dots and dashes, followed by a dot, followed by anything A to Z, but only two to four characters are being limited. So that would be the dot com, dot co, dot moby, anything that you have as an email, and then a word boundary, and that's the end. For regexes that are infinitely more complex, I imagine this would really be a godsend, and I'm going to keep that in my toolbox and probably use it 
almost any time I encounter a regular expression. I can tell you that. Thanks for being part of my first podcast. Remember, I can be found on PeteOnSoftware.com and on Twitter as at PeteOnSoftware. You can find episodes of the show on iTunes, or you can go to PeteOnSoftware.com and click Podcast in the menu. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. And if you'd really like to show your appreciation, I'd be very thankful for some favorable reviews and rankings on iTunes or wherever you found me. If you have any questions, feel free to send them to me. My email address is on my blog. If you're moved enough to write a blog in response to anything that I say, or if you respond in your own podcast, let me know. I'd love to check it out, and as long as you're respectful, I'll have no problem with sharing your perspective with others too. See you next time.